Hello, this is Swami Janeshwar. This is a talk from the annual conference of the Center for Non-Dualism in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, February 23, 2008. The talk is on theism, atheism, non-dualism, contemplation, and Shaktipata. For more information, please see the website centerfornondualism.org. I hope you enjoy the presentation. You said too many nice things, so now we're late. So I won't be able to say so much. So, sometimes I have noticed that when a lot of what I do with people is involved where there's not somebody speaking to an audience and the audience is quiet but is more interactive and sometimes it happens where your mind gets pushed in trying to understand some principle of how to do practice that is not about intellectualizing it's not but it's discussing well what do I need to do and sometimes that leads to a feeling of frustration and, and it's not in my heart, in all honesty, it's not in my heart a wish that anybody feel frustrated. But it's a predictable part of the journey. If you don't believe me, go look at Sutra 30 of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, and he says it very clearly. This stuff comes along, it just comes, it's part of the deal. And suggests that the antidote for that is to stay focused. Stay focused and keep going. And often, when in one of those conversations, this frustration bubbles up, it'll come out different words, but it comes out something like, well, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? You, you know that feeling? You just. And I find that over and over, the teacher within of this person, in moments like that, continually keeps coming out with one suggestion. We have a Sanskrit word for it called satsang. And in English, when you shop around for the words, we don't have precisely a good word for that. But one of them that I know that kind of works is fellowship. And if we put a tag in front of that and call it spiritual fellowship, whatever spiritual means, because we can debate about that, there's a spirit in there that sort of says it all. This path going within can be utterly frustrating because the only thing that has to happen is that everything that you think you are has to fall away <laughs> that can be frustrating and when I say fall away I mean in terms of identification with it I don't mean your personality goes away or in fact that anything really changes about who you are at the surface level you still get to have all of your idiosyncrasies all your charming little foibles and all that kind of stuff. It's what makes life fun because we're all different. So all you have to do is let go of everything. So is there any wonder that we get frustrated? And I say no. I don't care what the form is. I'm not, I'm not being a salesman and saying, we need to do this more. I don't care what the form is. I don't care where it is, if it's in your own living room with other people or 
or in a formal group that has a, a name, Center for Non-Dualism, or, or it doesn't matter, in my opinion, what I'm saying. But there's really, 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 really something to this notion that says, hang out with other people. And I like to use the phrase of approximate mind. I don't know that I've ever met anybody of like mind. It's, it's, it's a little too precise for me. But let me get in the same arena. And that's close enough. And this is what we have and what we keep talking about. Bill and I are very close. Everybody on our council of the Center for Non-Dualism, I have high regard for, without exception. And you know what? We don't think alike. The thing that we have in common is that we understand that the wave and the ocean are one. That said, there are three things that I'm uh, trying to talk about in my waning time. One is about theism, atheism, and non-dualism. And as I wrote my notes for this, I said, that, I said, this is not possible to do this in 30 minutes. And, and yet, sometimes we have to do it anyway. And I think of it sometimes like juggling. Have you ever learned to juggle? I learned to juggle one time. I could juggle three things. And when you can get the juggling working just right, when you get in the rhythm, you got those three balls or those three things flowing. You're not thinking. As soon as you start thinking, you drop a ball. When you're in the flow, it's, and you watch like the, you can't watch any one, or you, or you watch this one, you lose that one. So you just have to take the whole field in. And you juggle, and it's going, and you know when you're in the rhythm. And the, th and the balls are just going. So I'm taking three principles, and if we can juggle them well, I think they kind of do a nice little dance together in the... Theism, atheism, and non-dualism. How do I contemplate? What are the great contemplations? And the third is, what is Shaktipat? And how does it work? Fancy word for Shaktipat. Uh, the word we know is grace. There seems to be two major polarities happening in our country now and significantly more so in the last five years. I stumbled into the fact a couple years ago, I was looking at Amazon, and I was just curious, gee, what, what's the country buying these days? So I looked at the bestseller list on Amazon, you know, which it lists in an order. And to my shock, in the like top 10 or 15 or whatever the number is, there were two books on atheism. I was completely shocked to see that this was so prominent. And I wasn't interested in pursuing atheism. I sort of kind of fed up with the whole issue of theism or atheism or something. I just want to do meditation. But when I'm struck my curiosity, so I said, well, just for the sake of my own, I don't, I don't often read books anymore and just buy them. But I said, I'm going to find out. So I bought one of them. I said, this is saying something different than I thought. Then I bought another one. Then I bought another. Then there's like four authors or people out there. And it, and, it, and it really showed me something. There is a polarity going on in our country. And on one end of the polarity, 
and my words may not be perfect or precise in this, just approximate. On one polarity, there is absolute theism, monotheistic religion. It says that the only reality is that I am here and God as a being is there. And he, she, or it is managing the show and that we're all familiar with that. The polar opposite ends up being called atheism. Now, as a fine point, they talk about weak atheism and strong atheism. It's the terms they use. Weak atheism simply says, I just don't follow what they're doing. Ah means without. It just simply means without theism. It's a very soft way of that. So it's not waving a flag. Strong atheism is the one that not only says that I'm simply not doing that, but also adds that, and that is incorrect. Hear the difference? What happens if you're a mystic or a yogi or whatever? There are so many things now happening in the metaphysical circles in our country. And if you look at what's happening there, and none of this is criticism, a lot of it is a, a reframe of theistic belief that God is there and I am here. It's a different version of it, but it's essentially similar. One of the common ones in in our country is that we trade in Christ and we take up Krishna. I'm just using it as an example, and, I'm not, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you happen to have the worldview that there is one absolute reality without a second, that's in a minority. And I just want to suggest, just consider this possibility. How does a theist look at somebody with the worldview we're talking about? In all likelihood, they're going to consider us an atheist that is opposition and wrong. How is a strong atheist going to view what we're doing? They're going to put us in the bucket with the theists. <laughs> and so what you end up is what I playfully say, sitting home alone. And you end up feeling a little left out, which is one of the reasons that we need fellowship and satsang. <coughs> because if you feel threatened, I don't care if you're talking about Maslow's needs hierarchy, or the teachings of yoga. She told us earlier about the five colorings, one of which is fear. So you finally end up, you've, you've constructed a reality of who you think you are, and it's like, don't anybody blow on my house of cards because we want to protect ourselves. It's built in. It's built into how we're created. There is a notion, a debate, goes on between Darwinianism or whatever you call that saying everything just came out of just matter. It's just something like that. The other end is creationism, sometimes called intelligent design, that says there is an intelligent designer and his name is God and, and footnote, if you don't like my version then you're, I'm going to kill you or something like that. Sorry, sarcastic. There's another version. And I play with it just to play with the words. It's not intelligent design as a being doing something. And it's not just a materialistic universe. But there is intelligence manifesting. But there is consciousness itself that is somehow manifesting as the universe. And for the most part, that's not part of the public debate in America or the world. It gets just not mentioned or left out. And the only place you can find it is when you dig deep into the mystical practices and teachings of any of the known religions of the world. 
why do you think they send them off to the deserts and the forests and hang them and burn them and shoot them and all this stuff? Because you're in a minority. And I am not sincerely saying that to say, look at us, we're cool, we're right, and all those other people are screwed up. I'm not saying it to say that. But if you're off the edge of the bell curve, if you're in a minority, you better hang out with some people of approximate mind or the rest of the world is going to trample over you. I've seen it over and over and over and over. I have wondered in my life of trying to be of surface once I finally knew what this was all about by grace of somebody or something. I say, what happens to wonderful people? If you are in a minority, you're going to be quiet. When we were starting this center, when we were talking about this, when the idea first came to me that says we should have a center like this, and some of those conversations started, the question I was posing was this. Why is it when we're having a conversation like this in public and somebody walks up, why do you drop the volume of your voice? <laughs> Something's wrong in our, in, in our environment. Why is it the monotheists not only don't drop their voice, they raise their voice? I'm not trying to change them. And the reason I'm saying this is please make note. If you know that tendency of what I just said to drop your voice when you're having a conversation such as we're having here in the presence of somebody else, don't take my word for it, but I'll suggest to you that the reason is fear. It's fear of some social, familial, public consequence. There's a polarity. Theism, atheism, yoga, and fear. How do I contemplate? We've been talking today, Bill has mentioned several times, but there are many paths, there are many ways to do this. Personally, I love reading the red words of the Bible because I see it through the eyes of non-dualism. I'm not a preacher, I don't go out and do that, but yet I do that. But the language that I know Every field, pharmacology has its own language. Psychology has its language. Well, the science, the art of meditation, contemplation, enlightenment has its own language. It doesn't mean there's only one. There may be multiple ones. But the one that I happen to be around, and I'm not a Sanskrit scholar, but we use words like karma. Well, the word karma comes from Sanskrit. That's just the reality of it. There's a lot of real lovely words. We have one word called G-O-D, that there are multiple words that are used in the study of meditation and practices. There's not just one word. We have to, in our language, use that same word for many different meanings, and we don't know different meanings. We throw around the word meditation, and we don't realize that, that, that there are different, use, different words that are used in the science of meditation. So we can get goofed up. You look up in the dictionary contemplation, it's going to say something like meditation. You look up in the dictionary meditation, it's going to say something like contemplation. So the two are interchangeable. Well, they're not. What we just did a few minutes ago is in the arena of meditation. I don't mean it's the only way to meditate. But notice that what we did is we moved attention inward, systematically through levels. If you want to give it a name, call it Raja Yoga Meditation. But when I prefaced that, when I started that, I did so by saying that whatever method you follow, you're going to eventually discover that it's a systematic process going from, going from outer to little inner, little inner, something along those lines. 
and I don't care what religion you follow, what culture you're from, this is the way we are designed as beings. And I don't mean take the, our Sanskrit words that define it this way, and you have to believe that, but you will find that it's systematic. In my opinion, that's the beginning of Genesis in, in the Old Testament. In the beginning, God manifested heaven and earth, and it was good. And then there was, the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. Which came first, talking or light? Lord said, let there be light. So first there's sound vibration, then there's light. In the fields that we know, we talk that we call that mantra and yantra. And tantra is the method of dealing with them. Different systems, different language, same process. That said, what is contemplation? There is a stance. I want to use the word stance. Contemplation is a stance of anticipating. Meditation is a stance of focus. That's what we just did. Prayer is a stance of beckoning. Mantra is a stance of affirming. So if you ask a question, if you were to pose some question to me just now, Swamiji, please tell me about so-and-so. And I start talking, what are you going to do? What are you doing right now? You notice how you're taking in? As a stance, as a mental stance, this is the stance of contemplation. If I say to you, you know, please stare at that piece of paper, that's a stance of attention. It's a stance of focus. They're different. Now, said differently, half of the process of what we're doing is removing obstacles. Half of the process is affirming where we're going. One is about meditation. One is about contemplation. When a person swims, you take one hand and you do this, and then you push away. So you pull water to you, and then you push something away. You push away the obstacles, and you put, pull towards you what you're doing. In meditation, the way we just did this, you were aware of a level, and then you left it behind. Then you were aware of a level, and you left it behind. My hope is, I didn't want to say it at the time because I didn't want to goof you up inside. My hope is that when we came here into that space, that you forgot you were breathing. You see, you left it behind. You focus and you leave behind. You focus and you leave behind. Meditation and contemplation dance together beautifully. What is contemplation? Okay, I'm just going to dump these out. You don't know what they mean. Here's seven principles. Brahma satyam jagan mitya ekam evadvitya brahma prajnanam brahman ayam brahma. My pronunciation is not so good, doctor, but uh, forgive me. Tatvamasi aham brahmasmi sarvam kalvidam brahma. Wonderful. It starts brahma satyam jagan mitya. In rough terms, it means there is one absolute reality. And that's reality. And everything else is only apparent reality. If I hold this cup up, you say it's a cup. What if I tell you it's plastic? Which is more true, that it's a cup or that it's plastic? You see, it's more true that it's plastic. Because before they turned it into a cup, it was plastic. And if we put it through our blender and grind it up, it's still plastic. But it's no longer a cup. So it's only relatively a cup. You see, this can sound like an intellectual head trip. But this is a way of observing what is reality and what is truth. If you pose the question, who am I? And you say, why me? Okay. Am I my hand? Did you ever meet anybody who was in an accident or a birth defect and they didn't have a hand? 
Does the person still exist? Yes. Do you know one of the times I discovered this truth and I didn't have these words to go with it? I was in my mid-30s. I had a tooth pulled. It was a permanent molar. And suddenly I realized part of me is gone. My tongue was going over there. You know, and, I, and there's the simplicity of it that struck me is that's never growing back. It's gone. Part of me is gone. But the other part was nobody's gone. Can you feel how your mind sits with this that I'm saying right now? This is the arena of contemplation. It's the stance of contemplation. It is not sitting around intellectualizing. It's not what it is. I claimed the right. I claimed the right in religion. Christianity, one reference from Christians, say there's 39,000 denominations. If they have 39,000 versions, I claim the right to have my version. And what Jesus said is number one instruction was, just before number two, love your neighbor as yourself, which I don't know how to do unless you can do number one. It says the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now for some people that means our guy is the only one and yours is wrong. Another view says that which you call Lord and that which you call God is absolutely is actually one absolute reality. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. I claim that right. It is a non-dual reality. What you call God and what you call Lord, or any other name you want to give it, is in fact one. O-N-E, one in English. Then you say, how is that true? The process that you go through when you read that Bible or you read the Bhagavad Gita or you read the Koran or you read any of these, you read the Guru Granth Sahib, it's the process that you do in your mind to try to get it, to absorb in it, that is contemplation. If you do only contemplation without meditation, maybe you'll get there. Not so good. But maybe you'll get there. If you do only one without the other, you're missing something. If you do only meditation without contemplation, you're missing something. Sometimes you'll have a little glimpse of a direct experience, but you don't have a clue what happened. I can't tell you the number of times I've had a conversation with somebody that they tell me a story of something happened 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, and they still don't know what happened. What we need to do is come to the part that says, let me explore it. That's a contemplative process. Then all of the other practices lead up to that. Let's say that I have worked with my body, I have worked with my breath, I have worked with my mind. I have trained my mind to be one-pointed in meditation. I have trained my mind in how to do contemplation. I have practiced cultivating bhakti, the love of the heart, for other human beings and the Lord within, or however we do that. I seldom talk about what I do in the arena of bhakti. It's not uncommon that somebody says, you're a Johnny, you're a head trip, you're, you're an analyzer. Happens all the time. Get emails. Which practice a person is really doing is the one that he never talks about. Because it's too close in the heart. I'm not saying that as a universal comment. But for me, that's called Mahatrapura Sundari. It is the one who lives in the three worlds. It is she. It is she who lives in this gross world. She who lives in that entire subtle astral plane that is the backbone behind it. And she who lives in that ground out of which it comes. She is the one in the three worlds. 
And that's where my heart sings. When I'm sitting there quietly alone and this mind is not jabbering words as it is right now. When you have done the bit with the heart. Listen to the way Bill was telling you about the awakening of his heart with his altar and all that. But if you have a heart and you don't use your mind, you're missing something. If you have a mind and you don't use your heart, you're missing something. Find the love. Find the devotion. Use the heart. Use the mind to concentrate. Use it to gain insight. When we have done all of that stuff, some people in America, there's this word called Shakti Pata. It means bestowing of Shakti. We know it as grace. One may say it's grace of Allah. Another says it's grace of Yahweh. Another says it's grace of Jesus. Shakti is that fine energy. It's a word for that finest of energy. Pada means something like to bestow, to give. It's a gift. It's common now in America that people do seminars and workshops. Give me your money. Come to my thing and I will give you Shaktipada. Come to a weekend seminar, you'll walk away with Shaktipada. Shaktipada is not the beginning of the journey, it's the end. And more often than not, this grace that we're talking about is given in very small doses along the way. Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't go to seminars. Please, I'm trying to say this in a context. I'm not saying people shouldn't, that, that there's nothing to what's going on in programs that are doing. There is. But it's a, it's a tiny little piece of the thing along the way. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a very good thing. But the thing I'm wanting to talk about here and what Shaktipat ultimately is about, it's the thing that removes the final barrier. It comes in little pieces along the way. But when you finally get to the point, I don't care what language you use, where you have worked with your mind, you've trained it to be focused. You've done the contemplation so that when the experience happens, you understand the context in which it happens. You take a practice like we did this morning and you come to see, I know exactly what we did. It wasn't just that it was that meditation. It was a systematic process itself. And now when I see lights or have visions or, or, or prophetic dreams or something, it's making sense to me because I under, understand the context. I get the whole big picture. And your heart is singing and longing. And finally you get so utterly frustrated that there's nothing left you can do. And then the mind, the persona, the personality structure of who we think we are gets so exasperated that it can do nothing other than scream. There's so many different stories. You know, the, the, the teacher and the student walking down the pathway in the Himalayas or some such thing or wherever it happens to be and says, whichever one of you disciples will jump off the cliff, I will give you Shaktipat and show you Atman or Truth or God or Divine. And so everybody stays except one who jumps and gets enlightened. I start hearing those stories. You know what it did to me? It pissed me off. And it pissed me off for this reason. As a personality, I'm a coward. And I said, if God, grace, guru, somebody told me to jump off that cliff, I know that I won't jump. I'm a coward. I'll cling to the nearest tree branch to keep from going off. And the reason it angered me was, that doesn't mean I don't want this. It just means I'm a coward. 
I understand that coward is not who I am at some theoretical level. My own teacher said when finally the final barrier was broken for him, it was after his teacher had told him it will take you 14 years, and it was 17 years, and he said, obviously, one of two things. Either you don't have the ability to guide me, or you have chosen not to. I'm going to drown myself in the Ganges. Reason, not just to commit suicide, but my will is so strong, my desire is so strong, my karmas have brought me to a place where I'm not getting there. But if I drop this body, my unconscious desire is so strong that it will lead me to a true teacher, somebody who will show me. So I'm going to go jump in the river. And he says then, the master told him, well, you be sure and take a big boulder rock and tie it around your waist because as soon as you jump in the river and you start to drown, your, your instincts are going to kick in and you're going to swim to the surface. So he said, he's trying to help him kill himself. And he said, you don't, what happened to love? You used to love me. Now you're telling me to do this. See, he's walking toward her. And the, the way he tells the story, you've heard the story. When he tells the story, he says, that he started walking toward the river and the teacher said, okay, no, no, wait, give me a minute. He said, okay, I'll give you one minute. He says to the teacher, and he said, sat down, touched him in the forehead nine hours later. We each have, this is Shaktipada. This is the meal meaning. It doesn't have to be done in the physical presence of a great master. It's not just the beginning. Shakti comes along the way. Little doses of that come along the way. If we're sincere, grace comes. It comes in a form that we, we find pleasing. You may, you may have in your mind that Christ did it because an image came into your mind. Krishna may have done it. Swami Rama may have done it. I've had people tell me that I came inside them and I did this or that and the other. And I said, no, I didn't do it. They said, yes, you did. I said, no, maybe it was Swami Rama in drag. <laughs> you know. But it wasn't me. And I said, or, in fact, I do love you very much. And, and maybe it was a deep part of me that wanted this for you, and that I'm, but I'm not consciously aware of it. There is this magic, there is this mystery that goes on. I liken it to a gravitational pull in the Milky Way, just to keep it small. A hundred thousand light years across, and yet all these stars swirl about themselves because of gravity. You have me? A hundred thousand light years across, and yet it swirls. There's no place in this Milky Way that there's no gravity. Well, there's no place in this world or in you that there is not Shakti and God and truth and all. Everything you're looking for is right there at all times and all places. And the thing read, Bill read about my bio and introducing, my job is to teach people to show, find the teacher within. You know, and God take care of me, somebody, the day that I forget that. I'm in trouble. I finally came to a point. I ended up in Rishikesh. I ended up in India. I was walking down the river one day. I'm walking down the river. I'm wearing a from here all the way to the ground orange dress. And in my mind, I'm walking along. I said, well, you know, this is pretty good. I'm in my late 40s. My life has led me to the point where I'm walking down this river in this foreign country wearing a dress. <laughs> so this is kind of silly, actually. To take on funny clothes and, and things like that, it's a rite of passage. People take on new monot monastic names, whether you're doing that or you go join whatever order it is. Part of it is, well, the first time somebody calls you Swami Janeshwar, uh, look around, who is that? You know, that's one of the things about name, because you figure out that it's not who you are.
All this process goes on. My last job from my teacher was spend 100% of your time doing the practice. Sit in the ashram, do the practice. The last year he was in the body was the most incredible year I've ever been through in this, in this life. I got to a point I thought my mind was going to explode. Insights were coming so fast day after day. I mean, I was swimming in this. I had an insight one day. I was sitting in meditation and said, you don't need to see the teacher anymore. It terrified me. I thought, what kind of ego is this? You know, that I'm saying I don't need teacher anymore. Two weeks later, I saw Swamiji. I was out at the hospital. I was doing something. He walked in the door. I was so grumpy. I so had it. I'm in my late 40s. At 30, I threw everything away. I'm broke. I don't have any money. I don't care about the money. You know. I ended up in India with $8. That was my total net worth. I owned nothing other than the luggage I was there with. This is where life had brought me. But I was hungry. And that day, he walked in the door like this. I was sitting at a desk, walked in the door here. I didn't even look up at him. I was just so fed up with the whole thing. He said, how are you doing? I said, I'm stuck. I didn't even look at it. I'm stuck. And by stuck, I meant there's absolutely nothing more I can do. I'm just, I was just completely beat. He said, what do you want? I could I'll corner my eyes. There was a little grin in his face. I said, I want the journey to be done. I didn't say I wanted lightened. Before when he'd say, what do you want? I said, I want to wake up. I crossed path and he said, how are you doing today? And I said, I'm wallowing in ignorance because you won't wake me up. Things like that. This time that wasn't there. I just wanted it over. Suicide wouldn't work. I wasn't suicidal. I just wanted the whole thing to stop. Whole thing. I said, what do you want? I said, I want the journey to be done. And he said, now you will be given piercing of the bindu. When we talk about seeing light at the end of a tunnel, we hear this, right? Every one of us have heard this story. That tunnel is called Brahmanadi in the science of meditation or tantra or yoga or whatever you want to call it. It's one of the names. If you're looking at light at the end of a tunnel, by definition, by your statement, you are at the entrance of the tunnel. Because you wouldn't see a tunnel if you were not at the entrance, right? Well, if you go up that tunnel... Then you see the light. I saw the light and I was bathed in the light. Well, you haven't gotten there yet because you haven't gotten to the source of the light. But what most of us do most of the time is we back off out of fear. That's the way this process works. It's just the way it works. But somewhere along the way, you encounter the fact that space emerged out of a point. X, Y, Z axis emerged out of a point. The light, that's the ocean of light, emerged out of a point. Point, one of the names of that is Bindu. Bindu literally translates as point. It's the dot on the Om symbol. These dots are, it used to be the cross. There was never, the original cross was, was not from Christianity as a murder weapon. It was, it was a dot with four things coming out. It was meaning there's a point and stuff comes out from it. That was the original meaning of that. And then we've turned it into a cross because we may draw it like a cross, you know, and people were killed on crosses. It started as a point coming out. So he said, now you'll be giving piercing of the Bindu. And he also told me, and don't come back. 
That was the insight of two weeks before. And I found out, oh. Now when he said that, did I get excited? No. I was so stuck, I didn't believe it. I did not believe it. Nothing. He told me, wait just a certain amount of time. And I waited. Not because I was waiting in anticipation, but just time goes by. And so finally that happened. Shaktipat can be given by touch, as he told in that story. It can also be given by transmission when you're not in the physical presence of anybody. It can be put in a glass of water. There's, there's different ways in which this grace happens or seems to happen. It can seem to happen through another person. He tells a story himself. The one time he was up in the Himalayas and his teacher told him, you know, go down to, to Haridwar, it's a long way at the time to get down there, take the train down to Kanpur and go find Swami so-and-so and I want you to give him Shaktipat. He, said, he was young. He said, I can't do that. How, how can I do that? He said, you just go do it. So he said he's walking around, he's starting to touch things to see if he's got this power. Nothing was happening. But then he got to Kanpur, he got in front of this Swami, and he said, all of a sudden, something picked his arm, came up. He wasn't doing it. His arm came up, and he touched this fellow right in the forehead, and the Swami went, bang, he was off in Samadhi, gone. And the way I like to say it playfully is his boss, I call my teacher boss, I like the term. So his boss got a twofer. You see, he, he got Shaktipat given to the guy he wanted it to, but he also got this young man, Swami Rama. He got him to see that this is not about me as a person and it's not about you as a person. It's about God himself, herself, Shakti. I don't care what word you use. But there's a grace thing that happens. And it works through us. So it was a way in which he got him and he taught him that lesson. And the way things unfolded for me, why didn't he come as a great master and say, okay, now my son, I'm going to touch you in the forehead. That's not what he did. He told me it's going to happen. As I noticed over time, this is what he'd do. He'd show me something and then I was, he'd tell me something and then I would see, be seeing it later. And I've come to see that he did this thing. Somebody did this thing. Tradition, guru, grace, somebody did this thing in such a way that I can stand here and emphatically say, you do not have to be touched in the forehead by Jesus or Buddha or anybody. If we do the thing, the grace will come. You don't have to go join a cult, do a thing. You don't have to come here. We don't have to do anything. Oops, except I need to stop talking. Somebody was supposed to tell me to shut up. Shaktipada. Is it in the beginning? Yes. It is in the stages along the way? Yes. But the real one is the one that breaks the final barrier. That's the one. Never give up. But let go. I can't tell you the number of people I have met who privately, quietly, behind the scenes, some are well-known teaching people. I don't mean locally, I mean around. That inside, they're saying, I don't believe I, I really can do it in this lifetime. 
I know a woman from Bombay, India, who was, was for years involved with the longest time knowing teaching institution, studying Sanskrit, studying Yoga Sutras. And one day, the time she was about 30, one of the teachers said to her something like, well, you don't really think you're going to get enlightened, do you? And she was shocked. She suddenly realized, what we're having here is not sadhana, we're having Sanskrit lessons. And so she ran into this, she checked it out with somebody else, just found ways to get into conversations. And she found that this was what was being behind the scenes. People weren't actually thinking that they can attain it in this lifetime. And here it doesn't mean final moksha and you have no more karma. It means that for even one second you have literally stood on the top of the mountain of the spiritual mountain. And what did she do? <laughs> like people have been doing for a very long time. She got disgruntled, got confused, and came to Rishikesh. <laughs> and that's where we met. And it's a story. Just to say, never give up. Never give up. Till your last breath in this body, don't give up. Jesus said, the Father and I are one, me too. I'm not saying you go out in the street and tell everybody that, but in your heart, at least in your heart, do you believe that's true? Then tell yourself that. If it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. I'll be quiet now. Oh. Soham.